You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. And she said, so I, I just stopped using it. I mean, I've had my time. This is their time. And so, so I just don't use the computer anymore. And I just tore my heart out that this woman was giving up her ability to interact with her friends and stuff online, and she had trouble moving around. And so because it was so hard for her to get it set up, she couldn't do it herself. Somebody else had to do it. And then when it was done, it was a big thing to get it all undone. I'm Mark Pawlowski, founder of Mix, and that was Greg van der Heiden talking about one of the experiences which has informed his career in accessibility and inclusion. Uh, it's a career which is now in its fifth decade. So Greg is a professor in the School of Information Studies at the University of Maryland. Uh, and he's also the director of the Trace Research and Development Center there. And we got together to talk about the Global Public Inclusive Infrastructure, or GPII. Now, this is a a multi-partner, multi-country effort. It's supported by the EU, uh, by the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living and Rehabilitation Research in the US, by the Canadian government, uh, numerous universities, corporations like IBM and Microsoft. And Greg is the initiator and one of the driving forces behind the GPII. What he set out to do with this initiative is threefold. So firstly, to create an overarching universal list of all the technologies that are available to help with inclusion and accessibility. Secondly, to identify where there are still gaps and and unmet needs and to give the designers of digital experiences the tools they need to ensure they can build in an accessible way to meet those needs. And lastly, there's this long-term vision of enabling all of the world's digital touch points to be instantly customizable to the accessibility needs of whoever is using them. It really is a bold and wide-ranging vision, uh, and they're starting to make it a reality. They're currently undergoing trials of the tools that they need to embed in mainstream computer operating systems to make this kind of auto-personalization possible. So as you might imagine, when you've had as much experience over the years as Greg has, He turned out to have a fair few stories to tell, uh, including the inside scoop on the time that he spent working with Apple and Microsoft in the very early days of of personal computers, helping them to build some of the first accessibility capabilities into their operating systems. So as ever, you can find show notes with links to everything that we talk about at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. Hope you enjoy. And here we go. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join me for the show today. Uh, Whereabouts are you dialing in from today? I'm dialing in from College Park, uh, Maryland, where we have the Trace Center. Okay, great. Now... I know you have been involved in this area of accessibility for some time now. 
just how many years does your involvement in this field go back? It started in 1971, so that makes it, uh, what, 47 years or something? Uh, yeah, a quick bit of mental arithmetic. 40, yeah, 46, 46, 47 years. 46. And what led you to have an interest in that area? Uh, I was tricked. Um, I was an undergraduate student at the University of Wisconsin in electrical engineering. And um, I was actually just about to leave electrical engineering into something else. Um, I was doing very well and you know high GPA and all that stuff but but the um, th there wasn't enough people in it so I was uh, asking him if I could just you know just change courses <laughs> in my senior year and just go do something else that that um, that had more uh, people involved in it and um, a few weeks later, and they, they allowed it because I had the high GPA, so they didn't care. Um, and somebody came by where I was a, a technician in a psychology lab. And um, they talked to me about the fact there was this boy who couldn't speak or write or type, and he was in a local school. And they were actually looking for somebody else, and I just got into a conversation with them. And... Um, they came back the next day because the person wasn't there, and and I just started spouting ideas that I thought they might try. And and uh, he said uh, uh, basically, well, you know, I don't understand. Uh, later, I figured out he did understand, and but he kept saying I don't understand, and I kept explaining it. And he said, well, look, look, the school's not very far away. Why don't you just go ahead and 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 come out and show me? And the last thing I remember saying is, you expect me to walk out of work in the middle of the day? And the next thing I knew, I was at the school. And I, this was a different world back then. I actually had never met anyone with a disability to that point in my life, senior in college. And I met this young lad who uh, couldn't speak. He had a piece of wood that somebody had wood burned the letters onto. And he had severe athetoid cerebral palsy, so um, it took him four or five seconds to point to a letter um, with his hand um, usually over his head behind him between each pointing motion. And uh, but but he was a, a bright little smiley <laughs> little kid, and 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 I just uh, on the spot. Uh, you know, decided I had three ideas, and the first one I threw out when I saw him, and the second one um, I threw out as soon as we tried to use it, and the third one worked, but it was slower than what he did, and so we set out to try to, to figure it out. So I joined with that guy, um, David Lamers, and uh, he and I put together a, a, the, a team of students. Um, this wasn't part of any class project or anything, it was just a bunch of students about oh, 12 of us from eight different departments on campus. We had special ed and ed psych and OT and, and everything, all trying to figure out a, a solution for this young lad. And was the solution that you had in mind from the outset specifically related to technology, or were you keeping an open mind at that point as to what could help? Well, the problem was that he could communicate. It just took that somebody had to be with him every second to be watching him or he couldn't talk in class he couldn't do homework he couldn't do classwork because everything was through this wooden board 
And so what they were asking was, is there some way that you can give him something that he can use to communicate that doesn't require us to have the only teacher aid we have be dedicated 100% to him, or otherwise he's completely unable to talk. So they were looking for something that would make him an independent communicator. So it was um, technology. Um, and that's what we set out to do. And we put the different people together from all the different uh, disciplines because we figured it wasn't just a technology issue. So we didn't need occupational and communication disabilities and all that stuff in order to just look at, um, you know, wires and things. Um, so we um, proceeded and we created something in a um, telethon for cerebral palsy, you know, showed it. And all of a sudden we started getting all these calls and from other people that also had children like this who couldn't communicate independently. And um, so then we started working on it for them and then from then and then from there. And, you know, I had just quit my job um, uh, to, to join David to do this. And then uh, we graduated. He went off because he had a family. And so I continued on and that uh, project grew in more projects and more people. And that actually is where the Trace Center came from. It actually grew out of a student undergraduate team that formed to try to solve problems 46 years ago. So I mean, right from the outset there, I guess you've got that strongest possible link with the idea of being user-centered and people-centered in the work that you're doing here. And that, that initial motivation, as you describe, I suppose, came rather by chance, but from working with one specific individual who had a specific challenge to overcome and, and helping them to overcome that that challenge. Um, is that a theme which has continued throughout the work of the centre, keeping that close link with the the needs of those that you're, you're trying to pr provide solutions for? Oh, yes. the All of the work of the centre is, um, if you will, mission or problem-driven. And so the, the goal has always been to work closely with, have direct participation of people who... Um, are experiencing disabilities, the people that are working with them, the teams we um, actually had, um, Trace Center had its, uh, its own communication aids and, and systems clinic as part of it, um, and things like this. So the, it's been very much uh, focused on figuring out not only what the problems are, but, but we very quickly shifted into trying to figure out where the problems were going to be. Wayne Gretzky once was asked, made him such a great hockey player. And and I remember his the quote very well. And he just said, well, a good hockey player is always where the puck is and a great hockey player is always where the puck is going to be or, or I always try to be where the, where the puck is going to be or something like that. And um, so what we've always tried to do is to, to watch the technology trends um, uh, especially as computers came on the scene. And, and um, so we started out in augmentative communication, uh, which is a term that actually came from our work. And um, when the computers came out, became very concerned that these things, which were now being used for doing all sorts of great things for people who had disabilities, were, not, were someday going to be just integrated into schools and everywhere. And that's all is really obvious now, but not everybody's saw it as obvious then. Um, and our concern was that we didn't want to use 
figure out how to use these new tools to do special things for special people, but to figure out how to design them or create things that would allow um, uh, everybody, including everybody with disabilities, to be able to use them to do everyday things, the same things everybody else used them for. And so that's sort of been the theme ever since is, is figure out where things are going, where technology is going, and figure out either A, how to use it to solve problems that are unique to people experiencing disabilities, or figure out um, how to prevent these new technologies from creating new barriers um, to participation. Uh, and that's still a big problem we have today. When you think back over that, timeline uh, and as you say like the growth of personal computers starting to arrive yeah, both in the workplace and, and the home and in the education environment is there a point at which you felt the work that you were doing in relation to the, the computing industry the, the emerging digital industry um, started to have a, a real impact towards that that overall goal of ensuring that these were tools which were available to to everyone you know, can you think of a particular moment where you felt like yes we're finally starting to get through to the industry here and we're finally starting to see progress on them taking this uh, on board well in the beginning we were all you know figuring out how it was the old uh, see if you can adapt things so in the beginning we had adaptive firmware cards like the one that uh, paul uh, Shweta did. There was a Byte magazine that came out that talked about uh, access to computers, um, and um, and that really sort of documented uh, what was going on at the time. It's a great thing to go back and 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 look at, see. Getting them to incorporate it, I think we we made a a, a package of access features, and we were talking to. Microsoft, actually, to a person named Greg Lowney, who is one of their um, lead engineers, um, program managers at the on the Windows when it came out, and we created this package, and and he actually Microsoft was distributing it as part of their supplemental drivers disk. This is back when the operating system was all on floppy diskettes, and you could get this um, for five dollars. You'd get the separate disk that had a whole bunch of, of uh, printer drivers and things like this on it. And um, so that was the first time that it was distributed, if you will, by a computer company. The first company to actually get it built in was Apple when uh, Alan Brightman, who was with Apple at the time, and uh, headed up their special education invited me to come out and, and present it to their their team there, um, as, along with some other people. And uh, he invited the um, head of product development, which was Randy Batat, and the president, who was uh, uh, John Scully, um, to, to lunch. And with time, he asked me to sort of present what we were talking about. Um, after lunch, Randy Batat talked to John Scully, and then he came up and he said, let's do it. And I said, <laughs> he said, how do we make our stuff accessible? And and thereafter, Randy Bittat had me come out every three months to Apple. And I have to say, it was uh, I was given permission to go anywhere and see anything and talk to anybody. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, and my charge was to 
make Apple's products accessible. I had no authority to do anything. I could only talk. But that actually led to the incorporation of um, the first access features um, into Apple way back in 1985, 86, something like that. Interesting. So what was the Apple product line at that stage? Was the, This must have been the, the early personal computers, I'm guessing. Oh, yes. Um, well, they had... Um, they had a Apple IIe, the 2GS, and the, and the Mac. Um, so the Mac had come out. The interesting thing is it's hard to put accessibility into a 2E because there was no operating system in a 2E. The, so the first uh, access features actually uh, were sort of going into the Mac because um, it had an operating system. And... Um, the, uh, and then backwards, we, we worked on getting it into the GS, and um, it, it, we actually got it some uh, got features into the 2E, including changing the silicon. I mean, this is really amazing, um, and it's a story in itself, but um, they actually changed the silicon um, in the keyboard encoder uh, to allow, well, basically, back in with the 2E, the software would all directly read the hardware. So whatever you had a software program and wanted keystrokes, it would actually literally read the, the keyboard encoder on, on the computer. So if you wanted to do something like different about how the keyboard behaved, you would have to go rewrite every single software package, which you can't do. But um, I was out there one time, and the person who was in charge of the 2E um, and he was always very friendly, but he came up to me one time and says, oh, I was waiting for you to, sh- to, to come this time, and I, that's always good news. And he said, you know, I was up at this, this computer users group. I think it was in Seattle, but I'm, I'm not sure. And, and he said, and he said you, you're not going to believe it. And I said, well, what? And he said, well, there was this, this, this person there, and he had, he had, you know, cerebral palsy. And I went, yeah. And he said, and he was a programmer. And I went, yeah, and he said, no, 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 you don't understand. He, he programmed the computers. And I went, yeah. He says, no, no, you don't understand. I mean, he was, he was a programmer, and, and other people would come up to him to ask him questions for, you know, how to program. And, and, and I went, yeah. And, and he was just, it was like an aha moment for him. Um, he had been working with me for, I don't know, couple of years or something like that. And, um, and as I said, he was always very positive, but I think he always thought he was doing special things for special people. Um, instead of realizing that, that people who had disabilities could be every bit as capable, um, programmers and everything else. And so he went from being one of the best, most supportive people to being <laughs> like amazing. And the next time I came out, because um, we've been talking about this problem that you couldn't do this, um, he told me he had solved the, the sticky keys problem. And I said, well, yeah, but you, it won't work on all the software. And he said, oh, yeah, it will. And I said, well, you know, the only way you could do that is, you know, if you change the keyboard encoder. And he said, and he just kept smiling at me. And he had actually changed the hardware so that you could inject a keystroke into the hardware and then the hardware would give it back to you as if it came from the keyboard 
So now you could use Zip and Puff, you could use you know any type of alternate keyboard you wanted to. Software running uh, on an interrupt basis uh, in the computer, and it would be able to put fake keystrokes into the keyboard encoder, and they would come back out to all the other software as if they had been typed on the keyboard. I mean, it was just stunningly amazing that somebody would do that. Changing silicate in those days was a um, really, really big thing. Well, I guess it goes to show the the power that those kind of moments of actually getting to see face-to-face some of the challenges that your users are coming up against, um, whether that be one of disability or, or any other kind of uh, design issue. Yeah, that can often be the key point at which I think people who are in the business of designing products start to get it and start to understand why these things are, are so important. And that seems to be something which continues to this day. I mean, if we look at some of the areas that people in the MEX community are involved in around um, mobile technology and, and smartphones and so on, I think that remains a very powerful motivator when they're actually able to get face-to-face with real users in the real world and, and see what those challenges look like. So it's no longer in the abstract for them, but they can actually understand what they need to go back and, and take back to the design drawing board. Exactly. And we forget that. Those of us who are working every day with others of us who have disabilities uh, forget that not everybody has uh, has has those experiences. And so when you talk about them, they aren't real. They have to go out. They have to meet people. And so we need to figure out opportunities to allow them to directly um, experience, meet, uh, interact with, uh, and and see the, the are those of us who have disabilities uh, up front and, and, um, and in person so that they get to know them. And then it not it doesn't become something they're doing in the abstract. It's something they're doing in the concrete. It's really important. Now, is that something that you have taken forward into the, the present day with your current project, this global public inclusive infrastructure, the GPII? Is that a theme which has continued to, to run through um, the work that you're now doing on this? Yes. The, the work that the Trace Center has done, um, sort of, <laughs> they kind of line up with the decades. First decade was all on uh, augmentative communication. The second was computer access. The third was, was sort of like universal design. How do we incorporate features, accessibility features in? And the fourth decade is really comes around to, to saying it's, this isn't about including those people or they who. Uh, it's, it's more about uh, making it so that everything can fit each person whether they have they are super users or they're not super users, whether or not they have um, a particular physical or sensory or cognitive or <laughs> any type of, of, of difference from, from the people that the designer originally had in mind. Can we make it so that designers don't have a particular user in mind that they say, gee, can I create something which has a very flexible interface so that people uh, can change it to, to, to be what they are. It's like a chair. If all the chairs were the same height, um, that doesn't work. So they make adjustable test desk chairs. So they make them in two sizes, one for tall people and one for three sizes, uh, short people and one for average people. No, they make it so that it, it, it changes. And, and, and not only do we change it, um, 
for different people, but I changed the height of mine at, at different times. Um, and so can we do that to interfaces so that they are able to adapt to us? And then we just have to make sure that the the range of the adjustment is wide enough to cover all of us, and they don't just say, well, you know, we can get most of the market if we just do this uh, range. So that's uh, part of it. And then the other part that comes to what you're saying is, is that the people building it include all of the people with that full range, and um, we make sure that, that the people that, that we're talking about that are building the mainstream products are aware and get to meet this diversity and the larger corporations this is happening because they have people with this range of disabilities uh, at least some of the range of disabilities the big area we have trouble with is cognitive language and learning you don't normally hire a lot of people into your computer design uh, area who are not able to understand computer design and um, so we tend to unfortunately still have our systems being designed by um, people who do not can't really understand directly uh, what it's like to not have that kind of mental and technical prowess. So that that area of personalization seems a, a particularly rich one, and one which I guess is very very widely applicable, not just in terms of the range of product categories that it, it might affect, but also you know in, in the breadth of obviously being inclusive of the the entire population. Um, but what's the, the specific goal um, that the GPII has around that? You know, what, what's the vision that you're trying to to achieve here around enabling that kind of personalization across digital devices? Well, when we set out uh, to address this problem of the fact that tech, the world is being, uh, I basically call it technified. We're putting digital interfaces on everything, and everything gets more complicated. And lots of little um, settings and things. Uh, yet it's being incorporated into every aspect of our lives so that um, you can't go to school, you can't you know, get a job. I mean, there's so many things where you have to use technology that for those who can't use it, well, they're just going to have a hard time you know, participating, even travel and things like this. So we need to figure out how to make the interfaces that we create on everything uh, be flexible enough to work for for everybody so this is no longer just about personal computers or even sort of personal computing devices like smartphones you're talking here about terminals and atms and you know, the full range of, of digital touch points we might come across in our lives i talked to a person who was blind who was looking for an apartment he says before i ever get there there's two things i know i won't be able to use and i said you haven't got there what what, what would they be and he said the thermostat and the oven and and uh, um, <clears throat> and I said because they're making all these the, the thermostat's going to be some digital you know HVAC control center um, and and the oven and I said well what about the microwave and he says I can always get another microwave and set it on the counter and use it but the they do not let me tear the thermostat out of the wall and stick a different one in so now um, this was ten years ago now we have digital thermostats that have smart phone interfaces so now he could use his smartphone 
if it was the right kind, but that's not generally going to be the one he's going to find in the apartment. But people are older. Um, we now make thermostats. It used to be a thermostat. You went over the wall and you turned it up when you wanted to get warmer and you turned it down when it was colder. And now you walk over to the wall and the thermostat, you know, like wakes up and talks to you. And we can make things really powerful, but we can actually just take them right out of the reach of people who have trouble dealing with technology and who don't understand, you know, what they are, are doing. Um, and again, it's not that there isn't some thermostat the person can use. The question is, can they use the thermostat that they encounter? Have you ever gone to a hotel room and stared at the thermostat and couldn't figure out what on earth you were supposed to do to change the temperature? Okay? And if we do that with our um, – I have something I call TQ. Uh, it's like IQ, but it's different. Um, I know it's different. Because I know people who are blazingly brighter than I am. I can't even, you know, sort of hold my own in conversations with them. But they can't figure out their technology, and I can. So, um, you know, I'm very happy to have high TQ. But if we, who are not on the low end, uh, we're at the top end of the IQ and the TQ range, and we have trouble with these things, what about people in the middle? And what about people in the bottom 10 percent okay we need to create a world that doesn't just work for us and uh, we can figure it out when we're at the top we need to figure out a world that everybody is going to be able to use and they don't have to sit there and freeze or cook at night because they can't figure out how to operate the uh, thermostat yeah as you say we've i think all been in that position in the world of hotels where you look at these things and have uh, no idea of uh, how to, to make it work. Um, but as you say, it's a problem of, um, of universal accessibility and one which is you know, applicable to a, a, a huge range of people. And I'm curious, yeah, how, how is the project, the GPII structuring itself to start to make that better? Cause I know you've got some quite specific aims around how this can be improved. What's the structure? What's the direction there? We identified three major problems. One is that solutions exist and people don't know it. So the first thing we want to do is to figure out how to make it so that if there is a solution anywhere in the world, that people can find it. And so toward that end, we've been developing something we call a unified listing. <clears throat> and it federates all the databases on assistive technologies from around the world in the area of ICT. Not um, The databases are much broader, but we, we are federating the, that stripe of it that has to do with information and communication technologies um, and into one place. And then it's not just special devices. We also put mainstream devices that have accessibility features. Um, so if if you have grandma and she can't figure out how to use the, the television set anymore because it's got to be too complicated, um, but there are TVs that, that would be simple or, or cable boxes or things like this that, that they would make it easy for them, they can find that. If there's like thermostats, um, there are simple thermostats that you could find in here and it would describe generically, look for this kind and here's how you go find them. But if there aren't very many, we list each one right there. If there's a whole bunch of them, but people just don't know that they exist, then we just tell them, here's the easy way to do it. Uh, we may even give them a search string, say, take this search string, stick it into your local browser, and this set of words will bring up 
the things you're looking for. And what kind of sources do you federate here for those databases? Because it, it occurs to me that obviously there's a, a huge range of different needs out there. And certainly one of the things that we've seen in areas of, of product design in mobile technology is that actually those needs often end up being quite overlapping and that something which was designed for one particular user or with one particular user in mind actually ends up having some subsidiary benefits which are very useful for another type of user. So are you gathering these from um, specific groups of users with particular sets of needs or is this something which is coming from the, the manufacturers themselves? This is not a problem that's unrecognized, the ability to find assistive technologies. And so there are databases in different countries around the world where they try to uh, find you know, all of the different types of assistive technologies available in their country, uh, and they catalog them. And um, if you go to uh, gpii.net, gpii.net, and you just right on the homepage, click on Unified Listing, you can see the list, and it'll give you the list of the different databases that are federated. And then there's several more that we're working right now. We're just going through the formal um, process of getting them uh, linked in, and so they'll be uh, tied in as well. And and the goal is for us all to share information. So uh, when any of us find something, it then ends up getting uh, into the other databases so that people can can find it. And it's in different languages and, and things like this. So we also have manufacturers. Uh, we also just watch ourselves. Um, uh, we sit on all the, like a little spider, <laughs> a bunch of spiders with a big net. When we see new products being announced, uh, we'll uh, get them uh, into the database and things like that. Well, it sounds like something with a powerful potential to, to really make people aware of the range of things that's out there and also to be able to make people aware of, of those things which are specialized to particular needs or maybe were developed for a particular set of needs but actually end up being applicable to a different set of needs as, as well. You know, having something like that which is that universal would seem like quite a step forward from just having all of that information siloed in different places. We are trying to get to the point where we get you know, everything that's, that's known, uh, do it yourself as well as the uh, commercial and, and the mainstream that have the access features. Uh, and then at some point put out a, a campaign that sort of goes, well, there's a fix for that. And, and uh, it would, you know, public service announcements or something that would go on, um, show somebody who just wasn't able to do something and somebody would say, oh, there's a fix for that. And they would just show um, some of the many different ways that you can solve problems. There's so many people that that could use things if they only knew, and they don't actually even go look for the solution because they have no reason to believe that there is one. We don't usually go look for things that we don't think exist. So what we need to do is to get people thinking, if I can't do something, there's something out there that would, would, would make it so that I could. Um, so that was the first piece, is if it exists, people should be able to find it. And sometimes it's right in front of them. I get calls all the time. We have uh, all these features that are built into Apple. We have uh, all these accessibility features built into the Mac and uh, into the uh, Windows. Um, we have these features built into iOS. And people don't even know they're there. And uh, so they call me up and, oh, I can't do this, you know, and I'd say, well, what operating system are you using? They say, well, I'm using the Mac or I'm using Windows. And I'd say, okay, well, what you need is already there. And I tell them where to go look for it. Um, and that brings us to the second part of 
the, the, the GPII. And that is, if it exists, you can find it. But sometimes people say, oh, they find it, and they put it, they set it up, but then the next person comes and they undo it, and then they can't figure out how to set it back up again. Or um, I remember there was uh, one older uh, woman I was talking to, and they were saying, oh, you know, I used to use the computer, and, and, and uh, I was on Facebook, and I would talk to my friends and stuff. But, but one day, I heard the kids in the other room, and they were saying, ah, the computer's all messed up for grandma again. And she said, so I, I just stopped using it. I mean, I've had my time. This is their time. And so, so I just don't use the computer anymore. And I just tore my heart out that this woman was giving up her ability to interact with her friends and stuff online. And she had trouble moving around. And so because it was so hard for her to get it set up, she couldn't do it herself. Somebody else had to do it. And then when it was done, it was a big thing to get it all undone. The second part of the GPII is something we call auto-personalization. And that's the ability to walk up to something and have it instantly change all of its settings and, and things to match your abilities. And when you walk away, it changes automatically back. So a person who's blind walks up and the computer turns into a caulking computer. And when they walk away, it's completely back to being a standard computer. Somebody with low vision comes up and it suddenly changes all the resolution and everything's big and, uh, and they can use it. And as soon as they walk away, key in or key out, we call it, um, it instantly changes uh, back to what it was before. Kids can go from classroom to classroom. They can sit down to any computer at the school, and they don't have to have the the one over in the corner that somebody's sitting at. And they got to wait for that person to leave because that's the only one that has their special things that they need installed on it. They can sit down to any computer, and it changes to them. So, the second big piece is to this auto personalization, and and it's important not only for convenience, but many people they couldn't set the thing back up again if they tried. A, because until it's all set up, they can't use it to set it up. And, and B, it's complicated. You know, there's like little, 10 little things you should do. And if I can walk up and they just all happen, then that's great. Yeah, otherwise, <laughs> um, I mean, even teachers in a classroom um, have a bunch of kids come in and they have to go around and set up each of the computers for each person. Half their class is spent getting these computers all ready for the kids to come in that have to use them versus having them just be automatic. So that's the second big Absolutely. part. I mean, it's a, it's a bold and, and very positive ambition, I think, which is by definition universally uh, applicable uh, around the world here, no matter what kind of user you are. The, the idea that a digital interface should be dynamic and respond to your particular needs in that moment and then be ready to do exactly the same when the next user steps up to it. You know, that's something which feels almost fundamental to enabling the next generation of computing. You know, we've been through this period of enormous growth in the range of digital devices that are in the world, enormous growth in the way they can communicate with each other. And if we're going to get to a point where we feel like we're getting significant new benefit from all of these products, um, that, to my mind, sounds like one of the key things to underpin that, that idea that they should be universally personalized and able to do that instantaneously and, and, and in a dynamic way. But is that a, is that a realistic 
technological <laughs> ambition at this stage? You know, what, what are the things that you're finding are, are stopping that from being realized today and that you're having to work through to, to get that um, closer to happening? <laughs> That's a very good uh, a very good comment and question. Yes, everybody that we've sort of worked with encountered it says, well, this is what we either call a heavy lift or a, a moonshot. Um, <laughs> the, um, uh, matter of fact, they would say this is actually a very heavy lift. Uh, and it is, uh, but we're actually uh, doing it. And we've uh, had support from uh, in the United States from a uh, number of funding agencies. The leading one has been the National Institute on Disability and Independent Living, uh, Disability Research and Independent Living uh, Research. Um, uh, that's out of the uh, Administration for Community Living. And it has been funding uh, the Trace Center over the years as, as part of a series of, of rehabilitation engineering centers around the country. And that's where the GPII concept originally came from. So we've had support from here and from, from some companies. And uh, the European Commission uh, actually funded two large projects in Europe, uh, the Cloud for All and Prosperity for All, that took the ideas of the GPII and advanced them. And now we're back into Rehabilitation Services Administration, Department of Education here, who's funding us to take this research and to actually build a real live version of this uh, auto-personalization of the in the GPII, and to pilot test it in American job centers and a community college and a number of high schools. And then the uh, NIDILRR, uh, the uh, organization I talked about in the first part, is funding it to also be uh, tested in libraries. So it's actually now becoming uh, real. Um, there are still some big steps. So we're doing it now in the libraries on personal computers and things. The tricky part is to do this, we can do it on computers and things where you can install uh, you know, this type of software. On mobile technologies like Android, iOS, et cetera, um, the, the security model is such that software you install cannot see or affect the settings of other software. And so for those platforms, it would actually have to be implemented by the companies themselves. Um, so we are in the process of doing the proving on the, on the PCs and uh, then um, moving to um, communicate, talk with the uh, companies about incorporating it themselves. Now, everybody is doing personalization, and that's not the problem. The problem is you want it to work not only personalizing their own, but personalizing all of the other software that you run on those platforms, and it needs to work cross-platform. None of us use technologies only from one company. You know, we, our laptop is from one company, our phone may be from another company, our thermostats from another company. When we go to school, the schools decide what computers they're going to be using and so it may be chrome os it may be ios it may be um, android windows mac os you, you don't know what it is and in one day a single user in different computer labs etc may end up using you know many or or all of these different systems so we need something that works across platforms and in a world where everybody is trying to have a, a walled garden, you know, like an ecosystem, and they want you to get in their ecosystem and stay in their ecosystem, it's a little harder to make the case 
for something that just works uh, everywhere on Are every you finding that being able to work with those uh, public bodies that you mentioned, you know, it sounds like you've had the experience now of doing that internationally as well. You mentioned you know, some of the European involvement too. Is that helping to make that case, as you say, because companies have their commercial interests and um, particularly in the area of, of mobile at the moment, they're very particular about the platforms that they want to support and the features that they want to build into their platforms. But does the opportunity to work with those public bodies give you more clout in making that argument with those companies that this is something they need to pay attention to? Um, There's some face validity that you get from the involvement and the support of the different funding agencies. But uh, companies' decisions about their products are very... Uh, this is a, from their perspective, this is a very <laughs> dog-eat-dog uh, world. And you can, and we have seen, um, you can go from being on the top to, to being <laughs> on the bottom real quickly. So they're very, very careful about um, decisions they make about their products. Uh, we have seen, however, uh, just a, a, like a sea change in the last 10, 15 years uh, around accessibility and and Apple really has just done this most amazing job of taking accessibility from being something which was, okay, it's it's done. Um, remember, they were way back to doing it, you know, the first ones to build it in in the beginning. Um, but with the iPhone and stuff, the, the amount of accessibility they put in there uh, is amazing. And uh, anybody who isn't aware of it should just go look at all of the different access accessibility provisions and features and stuff that are built into an iPhone. It's it's really amazing. Uh, and it's really important because most of those that they're building in there, nobody else could make because they require that it be built into the phone. Um, and uh, But they have done it and they've stepped up and um, it's, it's uh, really quite amazing. So we're seeing those trends uh, again opening something up so that someone has control has uh, of anything of any kind there's a, a losing you know how much control do i have of my platform um, um there's security i mean there's all sorts of things that 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 are concerns but the the benefits of having something that people can um, have adapt to them and so that they can move between platforms. And this is something that's just going to be a reality in schools and, and in daily life. Um, so that's something that uh, we can get by. But there's, there's very powerful forces here. These There's huge um, <laughs> amounts of, of money and stuff that, that are at stake. And, and so it's a tough, it's a tough uh, one, but I think that it's going to happen. Beyond the platform level personalizations and this idea of, of auto personalization, um, is the GPII also looking at the particular um, tools and, and applications which might be uh, missing? for um, communities who, who have particular needs? Yes. And so the third leg, you know, if it exists, find it as the first leg. The second one is make it so that it's so easy to use that, that it actually can be used and that uh, people will use it. And then the third one is what about the people for whom there are not good solutions or the platforms or whatever? And so the third leg of the GPII is something we call the developer space or it's epitomized by the developer space. And this is a place where we try to bring together all of the resources, it's information about disabilities, the problems that are faced, uh, things that dis people with disabilities are looking for, 
tools, code, open source, uh, you know, free components, commercial components, et cetera, that you could use to create new solutions. Uh, and then information about if you're a university professor or student and you've invented a new idea, you know, how does that get out? There's so many good ideas that get created and then they just die uh, because they never get out of um, research and, a, and an article in the paper or a journal paper. So then we try to provide mechanisms, including um, the unified listing, as ways where someone can take a product and make it available, and then it becomes uh, available uh, on the market, and it gets out, and, and they can get their ideas out. So the third part is, is what can we do to help people create new and better solutions, or mainstream companies, to build accessibility uh, in there. One of them is, for example, there's a master list of every accessibility strategy so that you can go through and, and even people who've been in the field just go, you know, geez, I have need, these all make perfect sense to me, but I, I never thought about all of these things. So I didn't realize there were so many uh, different ways, uh, things that, that can be done. Um, so that's the third part of the, the, the GPII. So are you starting to see at this stage of the project where some of those gaps are um, and where the unmet needs are emerging? Well, the the biggest unmet need is um, is cross-platform. You know, people have a solution on one computer, but it won't work on any other computer. Um, sometimes there's a different solution on a different one, but it's it's kind of like having to change your clothes as you go from one building to another. It's It's, you know, like it's just not it's not practical. Can we figure out how to make something that I can, that I can use that, that works across the different technical things I, I encounter in a day? Another one is cognitive language and learning, and also what I call the tales of the tales. Um, if you are a bright, technically oriented blind person, we have screen readers, we have some very powerful tools that can be used, and, and, and I know people who are blind who are faster and better at using their computers than, than people who are not blind, um, because they have the tools and, and the skills to use them. And, you know, you say, well, you know, will he be able to keep up or she be able to keep up? And you just laugh. <laughs> you say, no, the question is, can you keep up to them? However, we haven't, <laughs> it doesn't work out that if you are blind, you are also instantly um, the brightest and the most technically oriented person also. So we have people with all the full spectrum of abilities uh, and people who have any particular disability, say blindness, also have the full spectrum of disabilities and limitations and skills so that we have not only the, the super bright and capable, but we also have people on the full spectrum of um, seeing, understanding, hearing, you know, et cetera. And we can think of people who have disabilities as being a tail of our population in distribution, but, but they're not. They're really, they're only a tail in one dimension. They could be the other tail in the other. So we can have people who have no vision, but they, they're uh, cognitive. They're at the other tail. They're at the super bright. So when you look at the people who have disabilities, that's lots and lots of, of tales, if you would. And each of those then have uh, tales. So I have what I call mainstream disabilities, and we address the mainstream disabilities, that is, the, the people who are blind that have the sort of normal or above uh, capabilities and stuff. But in any population, um, 
you'll have people who are, are not technically oriented. And so what if you're uh, blind or you're deaf or something and you're not technically oriented and you need to use technologies in order to, to address this? So that, this is the, the spectrum we need to be looking at. And that's where we don't have great solutions. And the whole area of cognitive language and learning is so big and so diverse that we don't have uh, solutions um, like we do in some of the other categories. And this is what makes it hard. Yeah, this power of networks and the way in which communities can form around particular interests now using digital technology, it gives a real opportunity to start to address, as you say, some of those areas of the long tail or points where um, elements of the Venn diagram overlap or intersect, which um, haven't been addressed with um, sufficient attention to date. Now we're starting to get to a point where um, people are able to better share solutions for those very specific uh, needs, um, or they're able to exchange ideas about the need existing and find people who can work on that. So one would hope that a project like this would really help to um, to start making progress happen around that. I mean, it sounds like you've, you've achieved a, a great deal with it so far but when you think about the future for this Greg are there aspirations either within this current project or for the next decades project that you're you're looking forward to and thinking that there's a next stage after this yeah the the GPII actually doesn't solve the problems it it only makes it easier for other people to solve the problems for example um, the um, um, it's an infrastructure. I think of it like a road system. Uh, roads don't actually get people anywhere, and roads don't actually, um, you know, they're not, by themselves, they don't do anything. Uh, but they enable car companies to create cars, transportation companies to transport, shipping companies to do shipping. And if you took the roads away, all of those places could still do this, but they'd be just driving over the, you know, <laughs> over the countryside, wouldn't get very far very fast. Um, so having an infrastructure enables everything else. And so the GPII is a global public inclusive infrastructure. Um, the unified listing is useless if there's nothing in it. And the auto personalization can't auto personalize a product that doesn't have anything on it to personalize. And the developer space is just resources and it doesn't help anybody if somebody doesn't actually use the resources to build solutions. So the GPII is not meant to solve the problem, but to make it easier for everybody else to solve the problem. And that's, that's the key. So what happens with this is it's just a multiplier for the people who are already doing things. The unified listing is amazing because of all of the work that people have already done. And it's just a way to help people find the good work. So the, the auto-personalization just makes it easier for people to use the ATE and the access features that are built in. It puts them within reach of the people. But the amazing part is the people who built the ATE and who are building the access features into the products. So that's the exciting thing is that, the, as I said, the GPII is like a catalyst. It doesn't actually do anything for you except it makes it a lot easier for everybody else to do the amazing things that, that they do and that's what is the, the what i look forward to is not only 
the impact that uh, that this has to make it easier for people to find the great stuff, but then the new great stuff that that can be easier to do uh, as a result. Well, I think it's a wonderful thing to have a project out there serving as this kind of catalyst. Uh, and I very much appreciate you taking the time to come on the show today, Greg, and, and share not only the story of the project, but also some of your personal story as well. It's been fascinating for me, and I'm sure something which our listeners will enjoy as well. Perhaps you'll come back uh, on a future show and, and keep us up to date with how it's going and, and how progress um, is occurring around these ideas of, of auto-personalization and, and meeting those diverse needs out there. Be happy to. Um, we just did some original, some of the first pilot stuff, and uh, some of the stories are are just fascinating and, and delightful. Well, that's great. Thank you very much for taking the time, Greg. I appreciate it. You're welcome. So, what did you think of that? And I guess possibly one of the longest arcs of involvement in the digital space of anyone who has been on the podcast so far. Uh, and certainly quite eye-opening for me to hear about that ongoing road of work to ensure that technology is accessible to all uh, over all of these, these decades. Now, don't forget, you can find the show notes linking to everything that Greg and I talked about at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. And do please keep in touch. Uh, this was another episode which originated from an introduction made by one of our listeners. This is becoming a, a bit of a, a theme, and it's always great to hear from you, whether it's a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview, uh, or some feedback on the show, or just to catch up on what you're doing in the area of design. If you want to get in touch, it is at mexfeed on Twitter, or email designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. I'll be back with more soon. We took a little break over September, as you may have noticed, but expect the next episode of the Mech's podcast to be back on its regular schedule. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.